Father, out of your astounding grace, you have given us so much. Out of gratitude, we seek to give back to you and to the work of your kingdom. And now as we seek to place ourselves under the teaching and authority and guidance of your word, we pray that you would give us listening ears, attentive minds, and responsive hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. be very grateful if you could find a Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, if you want a page number, I'll give it to you in a moment. But you know there's other f- ways of navigating around the Bible. As far as these uh, shorter letters of Paul are concerned, there's an alphabetical approach, as, which I'm sure you know, um, uh, taking the, uh, the vowels uh, in order, A, E, I-O-U, so it's Galatians and then Ephesians and then Philippians and then Colossians and then finally Thessalonians, sorry about that. Um, so uh, have you found Ephesians yet, the second of that little uh, run? Uh, if, if you'd like the page number, it's 1174. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Um, it's, um, I was trying to work out what was in Paul, the writer's mind, as he made his transition to this point. And I reckon what happened was that um, he worked his way through chapter one, and then he thought, I've run out of inspiration here, I don't know what to write next. So I'll finish chapter one. I'll have um, cappuccino and a piece of um, chocolate cake. And I'll come back and then I'll start something different for chapter two. And because I've said such wonderful, great and glorious things in chapter one, every thing can't be like that. Um, I need to say a few nasty things uh, about the Ephesians to them, just to let them keep them, uh, put them in their place. And so I'll start talking to them about uh, sin and transgression and uh, death and all all that kind of stuff. And uh, so that's what we've got. Uh, We've got chapter one, and uh, with all those wonderful things going on, and then chapter two that immediately starts talking about dead in trespasses and sins, uh, with probably a big gap of hours or even days or weeks between the two as Paul decided what to write next. Does that work? Well, no, it doesn't work, uh, partly because um, these chapter, uh, these, these division of violent chapters um, uh, isn't biblical at all. It didn't happen until over a thousand years after the Bible texts were actually finished. Uh, and you often need to make a conscious decision to ignore the chapter divisions from one chapter to, 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 the, to the next, because often a flow of argument that is interrupted by the thought that, oh, we're starting a new chapter, here's something completely new. It doesn't work for an, a second reason, which, as you uh, students on New Testament Greek know, the very first word in chapter 2 is the word that's, uh, that, is trans- that would be translated, if it had been translated into English, and, and. So there's an obvious connection between 
what just Paul just finished saying in chapter 1 and what he's about to say in chapter 2. But most importantly, uh, and actually most obviously, the link between chapter 1 and chapter 2 runs like this. Paul has been saying in chapter 1 and verse 19 and uh, 20, he's been speaking of, he's been praying in fact, that the, his readers would know um, God's incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he starts to expand on God's power in us who believe. And he says that's part, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So there we have God's power at work in raising Jesus from the dead and raising him right up to the heavenly places. And now then, in chapter 2, Paul is going to talk about how that same power is at work in the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ, who were dead but are now alive. So it's a chapter then, or rather a passage, verses 1 to 10, um, uh, about a marvellous, a wonderful, a miraculous transformation. I'm very, very interested to think about the number of um, TV programmes over the last five or ten years that have been obsessed with the idea of transforming somebody or something or somebody's body or somebody's pet or somebody's home. I just listed a few here. DIY SOS, changing rooms, what not to wear, extreme makeover, life laundry, how clean is your house, queer eye for the straight guy, restoration, Trini and Susanna undress, camp and lots and lots of others. People seem very interested in transformations. I can tell you the transformation described here puts, uh, leaves all of those in the shade and in the pale. There's as a transformation going on here which is absolutely spectacular. And uh, let's look at, it, look at it together. There is a transformation, a before and an after. The before Paul speaks about in verses 1 to 3 where he describes the state of his Ephesian readers before Christ, B.C., if you like. He describes them as being, first of all, enslaved. Enslaved in three different ways. Enslaved by what Paul calls the world. Now, we need to be slightly careful with this idea of the world. Of course, the world as made by God is a wonderful thing and to be enjoyed, and we are part of that. But the world of people, in contradistinction to the God who made them, and in rebellion against the God who made them, is a very different matter. And that's generally the way in which the New Testament writers, Paul, James, John, for example, speak of the world. When I was uh, a, a young Christian, I heard the world, in this biblical sense, being described in the following kind of way. The world is those People, places, pleasures, and pursuits where God is left out. And if you define the world in that kind of way, it's a pretty big place, doesn't it? And it gets it tentacled in all kinds of different uh, places and ways. Those, in other words, uh, without Christ, who are following the ways of this world, verse 2, 
are slaves to peer pressure, to religious fads, and to the dubious role models of celebrities. They are following the fashions of the world. They are following the crowd. Paul says they are enslaved to the world, following the ways of the world. That's one way in which they had been enslaved enslaved uh, by the world. A second way in which uh, the Ephesian Christians had been enslaved uh, is enslaved by the devil. Now, I thought I was going to have to say this evening, well, of course, we preachers at Trinity, we don't tend to mention the devil very much, do we? And maybe we ought to... Um, uh, give him a bit more of a profile, uh, simply because the New Testament has a number of things to say uh, about the devil, about Satan. But after last Sunday, when in the morning, Elizabeth Scott from John chapter 17 and Alan from the earlier uh, part of Ephesians spoke very clearly about the malicious and malevolent power of the devil including a reference from Alan last Sunday evening for you here, uh, to certain things going on here in Norwich, left us in no doubt as to the reality of these malign forces, that there is an, un, un, an unholy spirit at work in the world. And even this morning, the passage that Alan spoke from began with an almost um, uh, unspe- well, uh, unspectacular, an almost, um, what, 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 what's the word, um, uh, Without, without really making a fuss about it, the idea that Jesus had just cast out a demon. And then the passage go, went on to talk about everything that people were talking about in response to that. So I don't need to plead with you. I need to say to you this evening, as you well know, there is an unholy spirit at work in the world. And what Paul says here is that those outside of Christ are in slavery. I don't mean they are demonized but I do mean they are under his unholy influences in the habits and behaviours and attitudes. And the third way in which those outside of Christ are enslaved, according to Paul, is they are enslaved in their own flesh, in their own sinful nature. They are, says uh, verse 3, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Now, I just remembered that in talking uh, a few seconds ago about the devil, I just didn't give you the reference here, and it's important because Paul doesn't actually use the word. When Paul talks about uh, following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, it's very clear he's talking about the devil. He's talking about Satan. So I'll leave that one now and come on to the flesh, the cravings of our sinful nature, which is sometimes referred in bibl- to in biblical language as the flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. That's verse 3. So, but, so there's no way that we can simply say, well, the world made me do it, or the devil made me do it when we do wrong, when we sin. We also have that urge, that desire within ourselves, within our our own sinful nature, to follow our own desires and thoughts. So there's no excuse. We can never say, he or she or it made me do it. In this particular respect, the devil is like the parent, a parent of a teenage son or daughter. As a parent of a teenage son or daughter... As I discovered when, I had, when our children were teenagers, as a parent, you can advise, but you cannot compel. 
And the devil is just the same. The devil can advise you to do wrong, to do evil, but he cannot compel. We do it out of our own will. So enslaved in those three different ways, says Paul to the Ephesians, the world, the devil, and the flesh. What an unholy trinity they form. Not only enslaved, says Paul, however, but also condemned. We were by nature, he says in verse, uh, excuse me, three, we were by nature objects of wrath. Isn't that a terrible phrase, a terrible description? Objects of wrath. Whose wrath? Well, of course, God's wrath. And many people today don't want to hear about that. A wrathful God? Surely not. I want to believe in a loving God. Well, you can. Please don't believe that God's wrath is somehow inconsistent with his love. Wrath is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. In fact, God's wrath is connected with his love uh, love, in the sense that he longs for us to be godly people, to be with him and like him and to love him and to serve him. And his wrath is his settled opposition to anything that's contrary to that holy nature. So enslaved then in those three ways and condemned. But then the third description that Paul has of his readers BC, before Christ, is the very first word that he uses here. They are dead. Dead, he says in verse 1, dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, dead is a very absolute word, isn't it? And people tend not to like to hear things spoken of in black and white terms. It's an absolute word. You can't be more or less dead, can you? You can be lovely, lovelier and loveliest. You can be dumb, dumber and dumbest. But you can't be dead, deader and deadest. You're either dead or alive. And Paul is describing these people before Christ as being dead in trespasses, in transgressions, and sin. A dead person is helpless. There's no use shouting at a dead person, wake up, come back to life. It's not going to happen. Death is irreversible. So Paul is saying to the Ephesians, Outside of Christ and before Christ, you were not simply the walking wounded, you were the walking dead. It's as bad as that. Now, of course, it's very offensive, isn't it? And you might well be thinking, I didn't come along to church tonight to hear this kind of language. I come along to church to be uplifted and encouraged and made to feel better, not worse. Who does Paul think he is? Pointing the finger at me. I can assure you Paul is not pointing his finger at you, Paul does not have enough fingers to do that because Paul is saying this of everyone, not just you, but everyone outside of Christ. A person may have the body of an athlete, the mind of a scholar, or the personality of a stand-up comedian, but in the sphere that really matters supremely, which is neither the body, nor the mind, nor the personality, but the soul, they are dead 
outside of Christ. Quoting now from the late John Stott, they are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people. They are as unresponsive to God as a corpse. And this is radically inclusive. You might think, looking at verse 1, well, there must have been something really horrible about the Ephesians for Paul to say that about them. Because he starts off by saying, you, the Ephesians, were dead in your transgressions and sins. But please notice, by the time he reaches verse 3, it's not you, but we. And then, later on in verse 3, it's not simply you and we, but all the, other, uh, but all the rest, uh, like the rest, like everyone else. So everyone is included in this. It's radically inclusive. Now, I would agree with you if you wanted to say to me, Jonathan, unbelievers don't always look very dead. They can be very nice, very noble, very kind people. And I would agree with you, but it's about what we're like deep down. It's about the course of our life and whether it's going God's course and with God or against God and in rebelling against him. If there is one person from the 20th century who you might have thought could have been a good enough person to have, um, to not to have been described in this kind of way, then I suppose it would have been perhaps the great Indian leader, Mahatma Gandhi. But he had enough insight to realise that he too Uh, fell under this uh, diagnosis. At the beginning of his autobiography, Gandhi said this, I hope to acquaint the reader fully with all my faults and errors. Measuring myself by the standard of truth, I must exclaim, where is there a wretch so wicked and loathsome as I? I have forsaken my maker, so faithless have I been. That's a very honest man. And we find it, too, in some of the more perceptive literature, too. There's a famous uh, uh, novel called Lord of the Flies by William, William Golding, which describes what happens when a group of well-educated children are left to fend for themselves on an island paradise. They descend, bit by bit, into savagery and murder. That's what we are like at heart. It's an impossibly bleak scene. Apart from one or other two little words, but God. But God. And so uh, having described in those bleak terms the BC, the before Christ, we now have in verses 4 to 10, the after. The great reversal, but God. There is both power and purpose in what God has done for the Ephesian Christians and for many of us and can do for you today. The power 
is described in verses 5 and 6. God has, and this is now a throwback to what uh, Paul had said about God's power in raising Christ from the dead in chapter 1. He now says, God has made us alive with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ. You see how the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in those who have faith, who trust, who put their trust in Jesus. I wonder if you have um, been to, I'm thinking of a place on the Norfolk coast, somewhere like Wells next to the sea, and the tide is out, and there is maybe a big ocean-going ship there on the sand, beached on the sand, and also a number of dinghies, and they're absolutely motionless and helpless. Not going, they're not going anywhere. And then the tide comes back in, and the same tide that raises that ocean-going ship back to float also raises the dinghies. The same tide does the same work. And so the same power that rose Jesus, victorious from the dead, is at work in your life and mine if we are believers in him. That's something about the power that raises men and women, boys and girls, from death to life. But now, why did God do it? What was his purpose? Well, Paul expands on God's purpose in the following terms. Verse 4, out of his great love for us, because God is rich in mercy. And verse 7, his kindness. And then Paul falls on his favorite word, the word grace. A word that means undeserved, unmerited favor. The the country uh, crooner, uh, Gentleman Jim Reeves, could sing, I love you because, I love you because. But God never sings that song. God never says, I love you because. Oh, I love you because you are so wonderful. I love you because you are so good. I I love you because you try so hard. God never says that. The nearest the Bible comes to explaining why God loves his people is found back in the Old Testament days in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where we read the following words. God did not set his affection on you, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. You see what, he, what that text is saying there? God loves you because he loves you. And you can't get around that. You can't get any further than that. God loves you because he loves you. And that's all that can be said about God's why God loves you. Certainly not because of anything worthy in ourselves, as Paul is at pains to say, not because of works, not because of any efforts that we have made, not because of any deeds that we have done. There is, however, another purpose, and we find that purpose in uh, verse 7, that in the coming ages, that is to say, Paul is saying, from now on and forever, that we might be exhibit A, of God's power and goodness. Just as a portrait witnesses to the skill of its artist, or just as a patient might witness to the skill of a surgeon. So, born-again Christians witness to the power and grace and love of God. Once again, I admit uh, that it doesn't always look that way, just as unbelievers don't always look very dead, 
So we have to confess that believers don't always look very alive. I think of um, a story I heard recently uh, about a pastor's wife who basically lost her faith. faith. She wasn't praying. She stopped attending uh, her husband's church. And this went on for 14 long years. And during that time, would you say that she was giving out any signs at all or being a trophy of God's grace? Uh, Probably not. She had lost it, basically. That's what she would have said. It's only after 14 long years that when her son came to faith in Christ, that she came back to Christ. Yes, there can be many stumbling points for many of us in our journey with Christ. We don't always look very alive, but that's, again, deep down what Paul is saying. There has been a radical transformation. And so now, um, as I move to uh, a few words of application, I just want to point out to you that I don't think there are any... um, Uh, that there are any commands in this passage at all. Paul is not saying to the Ephesians that they must do anything at the moment. They will come later. Instructions, commands, advice and guidance and this sort of thing. But I think there is an implied imperative here and that is the imperative to remember. Remember what you were and what you have become in Christ. I think it's important for us to remember because Paul says it's important for us to remember. I've heard some Christians, good Christians, say, yes, yes, we know all about sin and grace and the cross and forgiveness. There's no need to keep banging on about it. Let's just get on and live our Christian lives without keeping going back to the cross and grace. No, Paul won't have that. He says, do remember the problem of sin, the grace of God in the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. Keep remembering it and it will impel you and form the bedrock of your Christian life. So do remember these things. Remember that it's all of grace. The feeling that we must make a contribution runs very, very deep. For the Galatians, it was the works of the law, things like Sabbath observance and food laws and the like. Here, for the Ephesians, is any kind of works are rejected as ways to God. And we think, surely there's something I can contribute to my acceptance with God. It runs very deep with us, but there is nothing. But it does run very deep. It runs deep from, well, the sound of music to Glastonbury. Back in the sound of music, Julie Andrews finally gets her man. And she just can't help singing. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth youth or childhood, I must have done something good must have done something good. At Glastonbury this year, I hear there is um, a little corner devoted to heaven and hell. Uh, As usual in the people's descriptions of heaven and hell, hell sounds at least as interesting and fun as, uh, as heaven does. But if you do prefer to spend an evening in heaven, where the sofas are trimmed with fur and the bars have working fountains, you must first convince an admin angel that you are worthy of the honour. And I can remember as a very young boy being asked the question, Jonathan, are you a Christian? And my impulsive answer was, I try to be. But grace tells us is not about trying, is about trusting. 
is not about what I do, but what Christ has done. It's not about me turning over a new leaf. It's about me receiving a new life. It's about grace from beginning to end. And then we respond with gratitude. Good works have no place as grounds for our acceptance with God, but as the overflow of our gratitude towards him, nothing could be more natural than for our lives to overflow with things that will help others and will please God. As somebody wrote to his wife, the day he was converted to Jesus Christ, there has been a complete change in my life. Now my whole life and aims and ambitions are changed. I now feel that I want to serve God in any way that he can use me. That's a natural outcome of a heart full of gratitude to God for his grace and goodness. So Paul will go on to expand on how we can live a life that is pleasing to God. And please do remember that even though it'll take us several weeks to get there, let's say several weeks to get to, weeks to, get to chapters four, four, five, and six, for those who are hearing this, this epistle for the first time, they would hear it in just a few minutes. They would hear somebody read out of uh, the beginning of chapter four, therefore, because of what God has done for you, therefore I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Yes, there is an outcome, a very practical outcome. What God gives us is all of grace. Then we respond with hearts full of gratitude. Let us pray. O most gracious Father, these are perhaps hard truths for us because they are, they do seem and feel so black and white and perhaps not in accord with our observations and our experiences. But teach us on the one hand the depths of human rebellion against you and then teach us on the other hand the wonders of your powerful and loving grace that opens blind eyes, that heals broken hearts, that raises the dead to life raises them with Christ and in Christ. May we love and serve you all our days because of what you have done out of love for us. And may we want to overflow in all kinds of good works, including telling others of the wonders of your grace. Amen.